And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, September 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this nuclear agency is making a lot of underground investment. Plus, the Drug Enforcement Administration fails its own lie detector policy. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, it's not official yet, but that planned 5.2% pay raise would be the biggest raise for civilian federal employees since 1980. Agencies can offer more, special salary rates for hard-to-fill positions like cybersecurity, but you've got a deadline to decide which positions should get those higher rates. And that federal government shutdown threat means the deadline is coming at exactly the wrong time. Here with the details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. That call for special salary rates, SSRs, it's coming up now. What is the deadline, Drew? The deadline for agencies to get those requests into the Office of Personnel Management is October 13th. So they have just a little under a month to get those in. And as you mentioned, this is coming ahead of what is pending but not yet final pay raise for civilian feds in 2024. We, of course, saw President Biden issue the alternative pay plan at the end of August, which officially is planning for that 5.2 percent average raise for federal employees. But at the same time, you know, ahead of the pay raise every year, OPM does have a standard deadline for agencies to submit these special salary rate or SSR requests that would take effect in 2024 or the following year, if agencies choose to implement them. And these fall outside of that standard pay raise. They're typically reserved for positions with significant retention or recruitment challenges. This can be in certain roles, in certain grades, or even in certain locations where agencies are finding it really difficult to hire. So what OPM does is they take a look at these requests, they decide if you know there really are significant issues, and they can approve special salary rates based on these requests at times. Now, there actually is a special salary rate approved, I guess, by Office of Management and Budget, the White House, for these cyber positions, IT types of positions that we mentioned at the outset. What is going on with that? Who can offer it? And what's the scope of it? So this special salary rate for some cyber and IT positions, this is something that OPM approved at the beginning of 2023, the beginning of this year. If all agencies adopted the new rates under this SSR, that would increase pay for about 100,000 federal IT and cyber employees across agencies. So the idea here is you're more competitive with the private sector, you have better retention, but there is a lot of uncertainty over the actual implementation of that existing special salary rate. For example, not many agencies have actually agreed to take on the special salary rate, and it's a little bit up in the air. So far, only the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA, is just the only agency that has officially agreed to implement that higher rate. For them at the VA, it would affect about 7,000 employees across the country and give them those higher pay rates. But for the rest of agencies, it's largely undecided. No one else has really stepped forward yet to say, you know, yes, this is something that we're actually going to be implementing here. Is the hesitation because of money? Because if you take 7,000 people and you give them each $1,000 more, which you're going to give them more than that, but that 
7,000 times 1,000, 7 million. If you give them 10,000 more, then it's 70 million. So is it money, basically, that's causing agencies to say, wait a minute? That's pretty much it. It's going to really come down to agencies' budgets. And as you mentioned at the top, Tom, all these requests that OPM is opening for new special salary rates is coming at a time when government spending is really uncertain. We have you know, neither a continuing resolution nor a full year spending so far coming to an agreement in, in Congress. So it's still highly uncertain for agencies what their uh, budgets are going to look like next year. And some experts have said that this may cause agencies to hesitate to even consider requesting the special salary rates when it comes to that. You can't plan ahead under a continuing resolution and, of course, not under a government shutdown either. So this might make some agencies less inclined to submit these requests in the first place. Yeah, no pennies from heaven for this one. If you want it, fine, go ahead. But you got to pay for it is the problem here, and nobody knows what they're going to get. What are the, some of the other SSRs that are talked about? Are there any others besides cybersecurity? So that is the most recent one, and the VA is the only one that has said that they're going to implement that SSR. But there are a handful of other agencies that can offer similar raises for IT and cyber positions specifically. That's one area where there is a lot of challenge in recruitment and retention for the government. So, for example, if you look at the Defense Department, they have the civilian intelligence personnel system, and they have a higher rate approved for that. That came back in May of this year. And similarly, for a couple of years, you've had the Department of Homeland Security, the cyber talent management system, which lets DHS pay some cyber workers at higher rates. So those are a couple examples of, at least for cyber employees, where those exist. But there are special salary rates for other positions as well. A lot of frontline workers, for example, law enforcement officers and other kind of frontline employees do have these special salary rates as well. Yeah, in cases like that, it's not so much competition from the private sector as simply attracting them to the federal sector, because there's lots of law enforcement and I don't think they make substantially less than in the federal government, maybe in some local police departments. In the case of cybersecurity, everybody needs cyber people, all the agencies, all the companies. And in the case of Veterans Affairs, other jobs such as medical and getting the right doctors and nurses in, they're under a different system anyway, Title 38, and that already has greater flexibility for salaries than Title V employees. Right. And maybe nurses at the VA, that might be one where agencies could be looking for a special salary rate or, or that's another area where there is a kind of a retention or recruitment issue. So there are, are a couple that are at least being tossed around, in, at least in discussion, but it'll depend what agencies actually actually feel that could be taken on and could be implemented. And we might see that a little bit later this year or possibly at the beginning of next year. And what about higher rates without a special salary rate? Is there any mechanism for that and which agencies can do that? The Defense Department and the Department of Homeland Security, they both have these different systems that aren't through that uh, OPM special salary rate system, but they have their own internal systems where they can offer a little bit more flexibility. For example, at DHS, the cyber talent management system, that does offer a little bit higher pay for cyber workers in that department specifically. But, you know, the SSR for cyber and IT workers, that is technically government-wide, so any agency could adopt it if they choose to and if it makes sense with their budget. But again, we've seen a lot of lagging in, in agencies actually agreeing to take that on. And should an agency decide after all of that that they still want to have a special salary rate for this or that job, what are the procedures? I imagine it's kind of involved and probably has a form that has to get approved all over the place. Yep, there is a form involved. You're right about that. And basically, agencies will have to submit um, some data to OPM 
based on, you know, what are the pay levels that their employees are currently getting? Maybe where there are there gaps in staffing for certain positions that they want to get that SSR or special salary rate approved for. So they'll have to get all of that data to OPM by October 13th. Then OPM a little bit later this fall and into the winter, we'll look at where it makes sense. And if they're going to actually end up approving any of these requests that might come in, then we'd see that approval be announced from OPM early next year alongside the pending federal pay raise across the board. But it is agency by agency. If a particular position might exist in multiple agencies and one agency wants an SSR for it, it's only approved for that agency, correct? It is actually approved more broadly. Cyber and IT position, special salary rate, for example, you had several agencies last fall who were requesting that higher special salary rate for those workers. So they went in on the request together. There were a couple different agencies involved in that. And that means that once that SSR is approved, it is government-wide. So any agency that has these specific positions available within them can choose if they want to or and if they think they can afford it to implement that that salary rate and offer the higher wages to workers in those positions. All right. So maybe the agency should get together, the people that decide these things, everyone take a position, go ahead for the SSR, and next thing you know, the whole government has it. Just a suggestion. Yep. <laughs> that could be the case. And, uh, you know, again, it's there is a little bit of uncertainty there in terms of actual implementation, but it's something that, you know, OPM is asking for those requests right now until October 13th. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Drug Enforcement Administration fails its own lie detector policy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Dozens of Drug Enforcement Administration agents are on the job without having taken a mandatory polygraph examination, or they failed the test. This according to a look-see by the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General. For more on what's happened since this discovery, Inspector General Michael Horowitz joins me in studio. Mr. Horowitz, good to have you back it's as always. Great to be here again, Tom. And you have issued a memorandum of concern. That's a kind of urgency document, correct? Th- that's right. This is something that we issue uh, um, when we have an ongoing audit, but we think there's something very important that we need to get to the Attorney General, to the Congress, to the public, to let him know of a particularly serious problem we found. What tipped you off to this? Was it a type of whistleblower complaint? Or? Yeah. So we got a complaint from a concerned individual who uh, came forward and said, you should be looking at these policies. Nothing specific to what we ultimately found, but general concern and pointing us in the right direction. And the policy changed dramatically in 2019 for the DEA concerning the use of polygraphs. What happened then? So in 2019, the DEA's acting administrator announced a policy that all special agents, intelligence research specialists, diversion investigators, and forensic chemists had to take polygraphs and pass them, which the FBI had already done, other members of the intelligence community routinely do, but DEA hadn't been doing. And that's kind of ironic. I thought that polygraph science was 
sort of discredited, but I guess not. No, it's not discredited. In fact, it's used uh, frequently for job applicants, for renewals of top security and other clearances. Um, And also, for example, when we do administrative investigations, the FBI and the Inspector General's office use them on occasion in certain circumstances to assess an individual's credibility. So, in other words, DEA was late to the game in making them mandatory for employment in these areas. Yes, DEA should have done that earlier. In 2019, the acting administrator uh, implemented the policy, announced the policy. Just a detailed question, diversion, that has to do with the legal drugs DEA also administers oversight of? Right. Those are the regulatory side of DEA. DEA has obviously the criminal side that the public probably is generally aware of, which the special agents, law enforcement. These are the folks who check on pharmacies, doctors, et cetera, to make sure that prescribing and the chemicals that are used in the drugs are handled. Appropriately. All right. So you looked at the policy and then something led you to look at, are they following the policy? Tell us what happened there and what you found. So we started reviewing uh, the records as part of our audit and had this tipped off information uh, from a concerned individual. And we found that, in fact, while the acting administrator had announced the policy in 2019, DEA actually hadn't implemented it effectively because what they were doing is rather than using it on applicants going forward, they decided to look backward and see what existing job announcements were prior to 2019 that were still open and to hire off of those. And they, some people took the position at DEA that if you, as long as you hired off a job announcement before 2019 that was still open, you didn't have to comply with the acting administrator's position. That sounds like a very narrow type of uh, almost a, an excuse That's a little bit of an acrobatic movement to get around what seemed like a pretty clear announcement from the acting administrator. And you also found that quite a number of people were in fact hired without having had the test administered. That's correct. We found 77 employees had been hired who hadn't passed the exams, in fact, had shown deception. And we found three who hadn't taken the complete set of exams, both the national security side and the suitability side. Right. If you have a reaction that shows you're not being truthful on the test, then you are automatically disqualified for three years, right, from DEA. And so what happens at that point is they stop the exam and they ask the individual why they indicated. Sometimes it's deception. Sometimes it's tactics used to evade or it's believed that is occurring. And so you stop the poly at that point and you ask the individual what's going on. And you might resume it if it's a temporary issue, but if it's determined that you have in fact used countermeasures to try and deceive or you've in fact clearly failed, uh, you're right, then you are out. You should have been disqualified from being hired at that point. What's a countermeasure in a lie detector test, like taking a tranquilizer so you won't get a bodily reaction to a, to a question? Right. Or, or trying not to breathe normally or act normally to try and control the circumstances around the, the polygraph. Yeah, no card counting, in other words. Correct. Well, so these are people that had had the test, might have failed, but were hired anyway, the DEA said, by virtue of having started their application under the pre-imposition of the policy. Correct. In fact, some did fail. We're speaking with Michael Horowitz. He is Inspector General of the Justice Department. Golly, I mean, how high up the chain did the knowledge of this go? I guess the question is, the administrator at the time of the hires, 
I presume, would have said, no, you can't do that because here's the policy. Yeah, and we, we have no reason to believe that the acting administrator was aware of it. The purpose of issuing this, though, was to get the policy corrected right away. And these people that are on the payroll now working in forensic chemistry, diversion, intelligence, or as special agents, do they have to be dismissed or what happens to them? Well, that's uh, one of the key questions. It's unclear whether they can be dismissed at this point. So one of the recommendations we made to DEA was that they look to mitigate the harm that could come from these employees being on uh, the payroll. For example, there we identify in here uh, individuals who failed the national security portion of the exam, um, who failed the drug use portion of the exam. And so there clearly needs to be some steps taken to mitigate the harm that individuals who are on the payroll but perhaps can't be dismissed now under federal law are put in proper position so that any potential risks they pose are in fact mitigated. I imagine there's a risk management approach they could take to this. For example, you said there's a national security part of the exam, and if someone could be suspect of having ties to the cartel, that's one thing. On the drug use thing, well, yes, I had some pot six months ago. That's another thing. Right, right. These these are wide-ranging issues. Some of them, for example, um, also failed on questions about whether they were truthful in their applications. Um, and so there, for example, you would want it to mitigate it, try and understand what they might have been untruthful about. If it's, I got my city wrong of where I was born, maybe not so significant. Obviously, if it's prior criminal activity, that's a big problem. Right, sure. Yes, I distributed cocaine and loved it for 10 years, but I've given it up now. And so you probably still wouldn't want to work for the DEA, nor would they want to. Well, two questions. First, have they corrected this situation for current and future hires? Yes. As you might guess, one the first recommendation we made is implement the policy that was announced in 2019 completely. Don't leave any loopholes or exceptions. As we were writing this up, DEA told us they were doing that already. Um, so that was obviously good news. They also told us with regard to DEA task force officers, where DEA has a rule that if a task force officer, in other words, a state or local law enforcement officer who joins a DEA comprised task force, with which there are many, Mm -hmm. the DEA has a policy that if those individuals fail a polygraph, they're not allowed to be on the task force, period. They're obviously not DEA employees. That's not something that DEA has to live with. They can deal with it. We made a recommendation that they implement that as well, and they told us they were doing that too. Yeah, so they generally were probably horrified by the findings themselves and and have been moving to correct it. And just out of curiosity, how long does the test take? What kinds of questions do they ask? There are the two parts to the polygraph questions. There's the national security side, which, as you might guess, is focused on contacts with foreign individuals, how you've handled classified materials previously, your connections to foreign terrorist groups or relatives who might be connected to it, things like that. The suitability polygraph is all about prior drug use, criminal activity, association with gangs, things like that that would trigger concerns about people being involved in criminal cases, for example. And just out of curiosity, does the security clearance process ever coincide with the this particular polygraph process? It, it should. In fact, what we found in, in some instances is that DEA hadn't adequately documented what had occurred. And so when some of these applications made their way to the hiring panels, the hiring panels wouldn't have known that this issue existed. And that's the concern, is that the security division, those who deal with security clearances, hiring panels, all of those folks understand accurately what has occurred in the hiring process. Yeah, because in 
the national security clearance process, I don't think there's a polygraph test as part of that, just a 100-page form. There is, but but the intelligence oh, community is. regularly does use polygraphs for applicants and re-upping your security clearance. Yes, so the potential situation for at least some people is they could have clearance and yet have failed a polygraph test at the DEA. That's exactly right. In fact, we did find examples of that as we you know, highlight in this report that certain individuals did not pass their national security clearance uh, polygraph. Um, And presumably, since uh, employees at the DA generally need security clearances to do their jobs, those individuals, uh, there may be individuals working in classified positions that are, that failed the security clearance. So they were doing a little bit of polygraph shopping until they could find find a way in. So that's precisely the problem. You, You can't have that occur in a situation where the intelligence community expects individuals to have passed the polygraph. Michael Horowitz is Inspector General at the Justice Department. As always, thanks so much. Great to be here again, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a messy dispute caught one company for millions of dollars of government refund demands. But first, this nuclear agency is making a lot of underground investment. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The National Nuclear Security Administration has a difficult mission. It must constantly assess the condition of the nation's nuclear warheads, and explosive testing has been banned under international treaties for decades. Now the NNSA is spending billions on new instruments deep underground. The Government Accountability Office has found NNSA needs to tighten up its program management. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment, Allison Bodden. Ms. Bodden, good to have you back. Thank you so much, Tom. This is a really interesting project because they are putting in very complex, large size physically instrumentation a thousand feet down underground. Just tell us what the project is all about, first of all. Well, NNSA is building two new instruments. One is named Scorpius and the other is named Zeus. And they are designed to measure sort of new aspects of plutonium when it is compressed by high explosives. So it sort of mimics what happens in a nuclear weapon, but it doesn't provide substantial and you know, any yield to exceed those treaty limits that you were discussing. And these are brand new instruments, leading edge science, and as you said, very complicated in and of themselves, but also will be placed well underground. And what is the facility that they are in? It's a tunnel facility called the U1A complex out at the Nevada National Security Site. It's a bit north of Las Vegas. It used to be known as the Nevada Test Site. It's essentially a mine. And there is experimentation that goes on there with high explosives and nuclear material, but in a very safe and contained environment. Right. So are the warheads individually brought there from time to time to be looked at by these instruments? Or how does the program operate? Because the warheads are scattered all over the place. Sure. So the warheads themselves are not brought there, but rather a device, a test device, very, very small scale and generally uses plutonium, may also use surrogate materials and high explosives. But these experiments are done in controlled and scaled ways that don't allow them to go what's called critical and they don't create nuclear yield and therefore they're called subcritical experiments. All right. And then the NNSA has a special 
subcritical experiments enhanced capabilities. I said that backwards. The ECSE program specifically to deploy these instruments then, correct? That's correct. And one of them, it's an X-ray type of machine? Yes. It basically is a very high-powered X-ray. It can see very, very dense materials. And what's special and new about this particular machine is that it can take as many as four pictures. So it kind of creates like a stop-motion film, whereas prior instruments have only been able to take one image. And give us a sense of the scale of dollars involved here. These are not $100 things or $1,000 things that would go into a dentist's office. They are not. Altogether, the program is expected to cost about $2.5 to $2.6 billion. And the schedule expectations are for the machines to be finished by about 2030. And the review of this program of the enhanced capabilities for subcritical experiments, this was mandated in the National Defense Authorization Act, I think, last year, correct? That's right. That's right. And, you know, Congress will take an interest in anything that has that high a price tag. All right. And so what were you looking at here? Really, we were looking at the justification for the program and how well these various projects to build these pieces of equipment and to install them underground, how well those efforts are being managed. The one machine, actually the larger one, Scorpius, is on track. It's being managed under a fairly rigorous management approach. It's been using independent cost estimates, independent technology readiness assessments, all those good best practices that we love at GAO. The Zeus machine had been managed under a less rigorous regime, um, really one that's more used for R&D approaches. And that instrument has faced some challenges, particularly around integrating the build of the device with the infrastructure needed underground at that tunnel complex. And long story short, when they determined the device's final size, they realized that the tunnel bore that they had would not be wide enough for the machine. So it's almost the opposite of building a boat in the basement that you can't get out. They built the machine outside they can't get in. That's right. We're speaking with Allison Bodden. She is Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office. And I guess my question is why we're not both instruments, since they are codependent to actually carry out the subcritical experiments managed under a single program management. The department deals with managing these projects as individual efforts, and they are not generally integrated. And that's been one of the things that we've been recommending for a little while, is that when you have programmatic efforts, multiple projects that are all required to be coordinated to achieve a common objective, that there should be a more integrated planning approach. And I think this Zeus and Scorpius effort is sort of an example of what happens when that integrated approach isn't implemented. And who does the build here? I mean, how does this get done in terms of contracting and acquisition and all that part of it? So the management and operating contractors who run the various scientific, technical, and engineering sites around the country that are part of the nuclear security enterprise are collaborating on these pieces of equipment. So Los Alamos National Laboratory, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Sandia, they are all collaborating on these. And the contractors at the Nevada National Security Site are responsible for the infrastructure in that mine complex where the equipment will be installed. All right. And so what were your recommendations here? You said one of them is behind schedule, plus I imagine it's costly. Talking about a shaft that's a thousand feet down into the ground, that's got to be expensive to widen that. 
Yes. And in fact, they need to bore a new hole for it rather than widen it. And so what we suggested was that NNSA apply that more rigorous management approach to the Zeus project and ensure that effective risk management structures are in place and effective integration between that infrastructure side of the project and the actual building of the instrument. And are these instruments like the size of a refrigerator, the size of a minivan? Give us a sense of what we're dealing with. Uh, The size of a football field. (laughs) They're very, very large. And this mining complex, this mine underground, uh, has several mine shafts with pieces of equipment in it that are really quite large. These are not things that you could fit in your house. So it sounds like, though, given an instrument that big, they would take it down piece by piece and assemble it down there? That's correct. It is built in cells and there's some testing of the equipment above ground to make sure, you know, that they're not going to bring lots of things underground that then don't work. Um, So there's sort of a test bed above ground that's being built in Nevada. But yes, it comes down in pieces and is assembled within the hole. And by the way, did the GAO, did you get down that shaft and just see what's down there? I did. I did. It is a very long, dark elevator ride, but it is a fascinating facility. And once you're down there, you really wouldn't know that you're underground. It's big under there. It's like the Loray Caverns, only scientific. It is very big. It's very well lit. And um, there is a tremendous amount of ventilation. Wow. Do people come and go daily? I mean, they don't live down there for weeks on end or anything. It is a work site, um, just like any other scientific facility. And so above ground, there are restrooms and parking and all that kind of thing. <laughs> wow. So uh, is there like a Starbucks down there or do you have to go back up to get coffee? There are refrigerators. I'm sure people bring their lunches, but there is no Starbucks in sight. All right. So and the NNSA generally agreed with your recommendations to apply these new management techniques or program management techniques, not new, but the tried and true ones to Zeus is the one that's off course. Yes, they did concur with our recommendation and let us know that they intend to have that more rigorous management approach in place by September 2025. And ultimately, uh, you said Congress is looking at the justification for the project. They're still behind it. It sounds like it's too late to not do it. And sounds like as the bombs themselves age, this type of analysis is going to be needed more and more. Yes, Congress is certainly behind the project. Um, it's been, you know, supported over the years in terms of appropriations. I think, you know, one of the interesting things for Congress has been the schedule for completing these instruments and ensuring that they are ready to produce data on time for the programs that need that data. So really the schedule concern is around completing the instruments so that they can begin the experimentation that will support the overall needs for maintaining the stockpile. Allison Bodden is Director of Natural Resources and Environment at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a messy dispute caught one company for millions of dollars of government refund demands. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The CARES Act, enacted during the pandemic, let the government reimburse contractors for employees on paid leave, those who couldn't access federal work sites or work remotely. One company took the money, then later faced a demand from the Navy for a $4 million reimbursement. It gets ugly. 
Haynes Boone partner Zach Prince has details on this case. And Zach, tell us what happened and what went wrong. So this case is less about the CARES Act reimbursement and more about some of the Byzantine challenges of navigating a claim against the government, or in this case, a claim by the government against a contractor. So the claims against the government, as I'm sure many listeners are aware, are not like a claim against a ordinary party. And they're hoops that you've got to jump through. And if you don't jump through them, there are ramifications. One of those ramifications for a long time has been dismissing a case outright, even if the arguments are brought up years later, even after an appeal has already been filed to the federal circuit and come back, you could lose out of years of litigation costs because of some jurisdictional trap. Now, the federal circuit has moved away from that, and so has the Supreme Court, defining a lot of the requirements as procedural, not jurisdictional. That matters because a procedural trap is something that can be sprung on you at a very narrow window of time at the beginning of a case, not years later. So with that backdrop, it's I want to talk about this case here, which somewhat avoided that issue. PAE was performing this long-term cost reimbursable contract for the Navy in the Bahamas operating the Atlantic Undersea Test and Evaluation Center. It's a deep water test facility for naval vessels, naval weapons. They do really interesting work there. PAE was the O&M operator. So at some point, and the facts of this are a little unclear from the case because it wasn't really at issue yet, PAE got some reimbursement from the Navy under the CARES Act. So that's Section 3610 of the CARES Act gave contractors the ability to get compensation from agencies to reimburse employees who had to stay at home because their jobs couldn't be performed anywhere but on site and they couldn't be on site. So at some point in 2021, the Navy starts exchanging letters with PAE. They say, PAE, there's some issue with these amounts that you charged us. The issues are not entirely clear and they're starting to demand amounts back. This culminated in a March 2022 letter from the Navy with the title, Demand for Payment for Unallowable COVID Costs. Yeah, that's pretty uh, definitive sounding. It certainly sounds like it to me. I mean, they said demand a bunch of times in this letter. They demanded reimbursement of $4.3 million plus applicable indirect rates plus 2% fee with a breakdown included by CLIN and SLIN. So really specific. CLIN being contract line item and SLIN being... Contract subline item. Got it. Okay. So <laughs> sorry about that. Um, Chapter and the, verse, in other words. That's right. I mean, they said exactly. You build us using these contract pieces you know, in this way. We want it, that all back. And if you don't pay us back in 30 days, interest is going to start accruing. And it concluded with this invitation, PAE, if you disagree, respond to us, right? And maybe we'll talk about a deferred payment plan. Deferred payment plan, of course, indicating that there is an amount owed and that we've already asserted that amount. So PAE appeals to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, considers this a contracting officer's final decision, which is one of those requisites for filing a claim. About a year goes by in this litigation, and the Navy suddenly says, actually, we're moving the, to dismiss this whole action because there was never a contracting officer's final decision. This deprives the board of jurisdiction. This wasn't a decision. This was just a letter. So <laughs> I have a hard time. That sounds like a pretty fine distinction. It does. And I have a hard time with this argument from the Navy. I mean, it doesn't pass the smell test in my view. But the tricky thing for everybody dealing with government contracts, claim, which is an important term in the Contract Disputes Act, 
isn't actually defined anywhere outside the FAR. So everybody's got to look to the FAR and what the FAR says it requires in order to give any meaning to this. Got it. In this case, the Navy's letter pretty clearly indicated that it was seeking reimbursement of specific amounts of unallowable COVID costs and it asserted requirements for interest that would accrue if PAE didn't pay. It doesn't strike me that there's a realistic question that this was a government claim, but the Navy made a few arguments. They said they were actually just inviting PAE to comment on their refusal to substantiate COVID costs. But I don't know. It didn't sound like a comment letter. It said we demand $4.3 million. Sure. We're speaking with procurement attorney Zach Prince. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. And so there were questions about whether the amount was owed in the first place. And now there are more questions about the process of the demand and what the legal and FAR status of that demand was. Yeah, that's right. So the claim itself, I think, will ultimately get resolved. There's going to be some litigation. The Navy actually withdrew the letter that it says wasn't a claim, although it said they're conducting a DCA audit and they're going to pursue these amounts anyway, which is why the board really didn't put much stock in that. They're not going to dismiss this thing that's then going to come right back because the Navy is still seeking it. What was their strategy in withdrawing the letter then and saying and, and verbally saying we're still going to pursue it? You know, I'm I'm really not sure about it. I think the Navy was trying to suggest that this wasn't a claim and so we don't have to follow the procedural requirements for a claim. So it's just a letter. You know, maybe it was jumping the gun. We're going to take it back. But really, we still want these amounts and we still have an issue with it. I don't know. It's a strange litigation strategy. So what can the company do to respond at this point? What's a good strategy if you're a contractor and you're demanded money? Well, we're pulling back the demand because it wasn't really a decision. So now we're pulling back the letter, making the demand, but we still want the money back. What the heck does that mean? I think I would have done the same thing PAE did. You get this letter, your lawyers look at it and they say, this is a contracting officer's final decision. And you want to go to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals You've got 90 days starting now, so go do it. You don't want to get stuck in a trap because you didn't construe something as a demand when it was. You could have, I guess, gone back to the Navy and said, please provide clarification. But they might have eaten up enough time giving you that clarification that you lose the chance to go to the board. So I think if you get to the board and the government says, actually, we're taking it back after a year of you wasting litigation costs, you do again what PAE did here, which is you say – board, don't dismiss this thing. It's still a live issue. It's just going to cause us to incur the same costs again, trying to resolve this dispute. We're going to be back where we are today in a year or two. So as a company, you need to keep it alive in the original form to keep procedures and timelines and deadlines intact, in other words. You do, because the government's just going to waste time. I mean, from my experience with claims against the Navy in particular, things can take a lot of time. And you've got outstanding amounts that are challenged or that are owed to you. And they want to go through a DCA audit. And then they want to go through another DCA audit. And years down the road, maybe you're just back at the board and nobody's memory is fresh anymore. All your people are gone. And you've just got to come up with evidence based on scattered documentary records. It's much better to resolve these issues when it's fresh on everybody's mind. Yes, because DCAA itself can be years behind in audits, and those audits don't exactly take place in 72 hours either. (laughs) No, they don't. They're doing a little better now than they had been, but they're still not exactly what I think most people consider timely. 
And as a company, you don't want that kind of eternal sort of Damocles over your head that someday, gosh, we got to cough up $4 million, $4.3 million. I mean, that's real money to a small contractor. It is. It's probably a little less impactful for a, a company of PAE size, but it's still $4.3 million is $4.3 million. And every couple of years, this thing pops up again, and then you have to get your lawyers fresh and your executives fresh, and that costs more than it would have if you just gone right on through it and gotten it resolved. So what is the current status of the whole claim and the counterclaim? So the board rightfully rejected all of the government's arguments about why this really wasn't a claim. I think those arguments were really silly on the Navy's part. And it said, you know, we found that there's a some certain, which is something you have to have to have a claim against the government or a claim by the government that you appeal from. They said it, it otherwise followed all the procedural requirements. So as a matter of fact, you are wrong, government. But what they failed to do, and I, I wish they had done, is follow on the heels of this recent Federal Circuit decision uh, in ECC International, where the Federal Circuit said, requirements for claims that aren't coming from a statute are not jurisdictional. All of the things here with the FAR definition of claim are not jurisdictional. This matters, right? Jurisdictional is a big lawyer word, but it really does matter because it has an impact on when the Navy can bring it up as a defense. If it's jurisdictional, anytime, the court has to bring it up on its own, board has to bring it up on its own. If it hasn't, it could be years later. And this has happened where contractors get trapped you spend millions of dollars in litigation fees. You've got a meritorious claim that you win. And then wait a minute, you failed some little jurisdictional problem. We're avoiding the whole thing from the outset. The Federal Circuit said, actually, a lot of these requirements are not jurisdictional. This is one of them, by the way, that all the issues the Navy was arguing here would have been one of them. The board should have said that. Instead, they just dropped a footnote and said it doesn't really matter that there's this Federal Circuit decision because in any case, you satisfied it. But that's not very helpful when you've sometimes got aggressive counsel on the other side that's going to assert any claim they can. No matter how late it is, you want to be able to say, look, we already have the board interpreting it this way, which is the right way. You're a year in. You can't bring up these arguments. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. I guess maybe they should hire you instead. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For many federal agencies, achieving a zero-trust approach to cybersecurity is still an aspiration. For the Navy, it's already becoming reality. Zero Trust still hasn't made its way into classified networks or aboard ships, but for the vast majority of users on the Navy's enterprise networks, officials say they've achieved at least the basic Zero Trust architecture. One reason, the Zero Trust effort rode the coattails of something called Operation Flank Speed, the service's implementation of Microsoft 365. For where things stand, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with Commander Nick Goddard, Director of Operations for the Navy's Cyber Defense Operations Command, and with Barry Tanner, Chief Operations Officer for the Navy Program Executive Office for Digital and Enterprise Services. Flankspeed is the Navy's implementation of Microsoft Office 365 on the surface, but it's also all of the security capabilities and underlying technology that defend all that information using tools in uh, Microsoft's Azure cloud. So uh, this was the first time uh, that the Navy decided to essentially go all in with cloud capabilities. And um, when, we dis when we started that journey, 
we made a conscious decision to start with a blank sheet of paper and use the work that had been done at places like Dreamport um, from, uh, from NSA and Cybercom's experimentation that had happened uh, in the 2018-2019 timeframe and take the lessons that had come out of, of, of those, uh, those efforts and build them into the implementation of Office 365 for the Navy. So flank speed is, uh, it comes from our original operation flank speed. Uh, we were like everyone else in the pandemic era, forced to go very quickly to a mass telework situation. And so uh, flank speed uh, denotes the, uh, we have to do this really quick situation that we were in uh, and the name stuck. So we've, we've, uh, we've, we continue to evolve that platform and use it as the basis for understanding and implementing zero trust in a practical manner. The implementation of that framework would not have been successful at all without a very close partnership with the operational community. Uh, teams from NCDOC and NetWorkCom were integrated uh, with the efforts from the beginning and drove a number of very critical lines of effort to make sure that what we developed was not just um, technically accurate, but also operationally relevant. The real power of the team that we have today is the close integration between us on the acquisition side of the house and the operational community to make sure that as we develop new capability, it's immediately able to go into the operational space and be effective. Not discounting that teamwork at all. I don't have a doubt for a minute about how important all that was. But how, how, how much of a forcing function was that pandemic-related work-from-home requirement itself, that push to get to a 365 environment as, as quickly as you did? Would you be where you are today with, without all of that forcing function? Uh, no, <laughs> it was uh, it was a catalyst. Uh, we had been uh, working on the designs and uh, and thinking about doing this as early as 2018. Like I mentioned, we were talking about this is how we need to do it. The original estimates of it was going to take us four years, uh, maybe even five, to get there, uh, given uh, integration challenges and a number of other factors uh, that that were facing us. Uh, and in a typical uh, environment, it probably would have taken that long, but. Um, uh, the pressure of the pandemic, the, the focus that it gave everyone all the way up to and including the Secretary of the Navy was critical to ensure that everybody was driving in the same direction. It was a very high priority. We were able to remove some barriers that uh, are typically very hard in a government environment to getting things done. I, I personally have been involved in Navy IT for almost uh, 20 plus years, and I've never seen anything go that fast. So uh, to, to say that the pandemic really led uh, was a major factor in our success is absolutely true. I'd like to try and connect a little bit more um, why flank speed was so foundational for, for zero trust for you all. We don't need to get too deeply into the technical weeds here, but and maybe maybe Commander Goddard, this is where you can jump in. What exactly are the security capabilities that are built into that cloud environment that get you closer or got you closer and got you to zero trust? Uh, thank you, Jared. Uh, yeah, you know, as, as Barry was talking about, when we had the catalyst to, to drive us there, uh, it was an operational push uh, from a necessity for folks logging in from home. But how do we how do we defend that? And so traditional acquisition in a five year cycle uh, takes a little, uh, you know, a lot longer to actually get capability. So, but when you have a forcing function to drive that, it sh shows us how to rethink the actual problem. And I think from a zero trust strategy that uh, Mr. Sherman had been pushing at the DOD level really allowed us a, a platform or framework to drive to an outcome. And so from an operational standpoint, when we talk about, you know, the seven pillars of zero trust, although those are important, uh, what we talk about is the actual an ecosystem of capabilities. So when we talk about migration from a typical legacy environment and we go into cloud, 
we actually have capability uh, nested within the cloud itself. So uh, in this case, we talk about the Defender suite of tools. We talk about Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, Microsoft Defender for Identity. It's not just those tools, the tools that we've been using uh, within NCDoc for several years. Uh, but when we look at the data itself and how Flank Speed was able to not just take the data, the identity, the user, some of the devices that we're talking about, uh, when you go work from home, you have either government furnished equipment or you bring some other personal devices. So the ecosystem was uh, very diverse. And so the tools that we had at the very beginning uh, were not very capable of actually identifying uh, threats when it came to uh, those, you know, bring your own device types of things or even the legacy uh, government devices when you work from home. And so when we talk about MS365, it allowed us to not just look at the endpoints, but also allow tools that were, you know, standard within industry for years and allowed us to leverage that platform in order for us to go faster, not just from a speed and agility standpoint, but from a fidelity of the data. And so that was really important for us. And what we found from the operational side is the, the visibility of the data and the type of data that we were getting, uh, not just from the endpoint, but from the servers, from the entire ecosystem, allowed us from a defensive standpoint to have better visibility than we've ever had before. And I think that's really important for folks to understand is, you know, was defense bad before? Not necessarily, but the visibility and insight into those networks and the ecosystem was not the same. And so when we saw the volume and the fidelity and the granularity of the data, that allowed us to make much, you know, much more risk-informed decisions about defense. Not not just 10th Fleet, but really all the DoD cyber components have, have been saying for years, we have more data than we know what to do with. So the, the natural question is, how does adding more data help? But But it sounds like the answer is one better quality data, and two, automating the processing of a lot of that data so that human beings don't need to actually look at the raw elements of it. Is, is Am I close? Absolutely. And so when we talk about, you know, those the 2.3 billion events, that, that's a lot more data than just those 2.3 billion events, right? So we see anywhere from like seven to eight terabytes of data flowing through our networks every 24 hours from a defensive standpoint. And at the operational level, they're in the petabytes, right? So our partnership with uh, Naval Network Warfare Command, which is our sister organization internally, so the secure and operate and the defend, are, we are right next to each other. So when we talk about insight and data, the volume of that data, to your point, is, is has been a big challenge for DOD writ large. But the way we're trying to solve it internally is uh, there's ecosystems of tools that can handle that volume of data. So when we recognize that some of the data isn't valuable, we have the ability to drop that very quickly or assimilate that somewhere else. But the storage curation, we're not trying to move data unless there's an actual valid incident. So when we talk about the telemetry coming in, uh, we're, we're tweaking that and, and taking, you know, industry best practices and apply them within the defensive environment. Because sometimes there isn't necessarily the right applicability when it comes to defensive networks and DOD and industry. And so our use case is slightly different uh, where we do care about the data. But the challenge for us is what data is valuable? And so the great partnership between Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Oracle allow us to understand, look, if, did, it, did it give us more insight? And we get the operator feedback very quickly. Commander Nick Goddard, Director of Operations for the Navy Cyber Defense Operations Command. And you also heard Barry Tanner, the Chief Operations Officer for the Navy's Program Executive Office for Digital and Enterprise Services. To watch their full conversation with Jared Serbu, check out the on-demand sessions from our 2023 Cyber Leaders Exchange. They're at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 